did not know that. Here? here? Didn't. I don't know. Did not did not know that, but I appreciate you letting me know. Do you know which hospital? Okay. Okay. Um, we are in a, over a year-long study in uh, systematic theology. We're in the last stages of that. I am here somewhere. Um, we're, we're in the last stages of it, and we're talking about the doctrine regarding the end times. It's called eschatology. comes from the Greek word eschaton from end. And we have looked at uh, certain passages. Uh, well, we talked about eschatology. You, you have uh, individual eschatology and general eschatology. Uh, individual eschatology, of course, talking about uh, the intermediate state, what happens to believers when they die, before the Lord returns, and that sort of thing. Um, and then general eschatology, what about the end times? What does that look like? What's it going to look like when Jesus returns? And I think that there are some passages uh, in, the, uh, in Scripture which gives us some indication of what it's going to be like. We've looked at um, one of the major passages that a lot of people look to to, to talk about uh, the end times, and that would be uh, Daniel chapter 9. We looked at it and, <clears throat> and actually saw certainly Daniel is looking at the thing from a covenantal perspective. He's praying the only time God's covenantal name is used in all the book of Daniel is Daniel chapter 9 in his prayer. And he calls him a, a God of covenant love. And he, he is thinking about the covenant and the covenant responsibilities. Israel is, uh, and, and uh, Judah, uh, people of, uh, children of Israel have been uh, exiled into Babylon because they've broken the covenant with God. And way back in, um, in Leviticus, God tells, tells the people, if you break my covenant, this is what's going to happen. And he tells them about that. And he says, I will curse you and you'll go away to another land for a while until your land has gotten all of its, its Sabbath rests. Right? And so we go back a chapter there and we find out about the Sabbath rests and uh, it's to happen every seven years. And then uh, every 50th year, they're to have a year of jubilee. Prisoners are set free and restoration of all the properties and everything. And as Daniel is, is praying this and thinking this, he's been reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, 70 years you're going to be in Babylon, and then the Lord's going to uh, bring you back out. And he knows that time's coming. And so he, he's saying, it's time. And he goes back to the covenant, and he sees that when God is talking about, I'm punishing you, but I'll bring you back out. But you got what you've got to do in order to be brought back out is you confess your sins and the sins of your people. Daniel chapter 9 is a, is a prayer of Daniel where he's praying, confessing his sins and the sins of his people, looking forward to the Lord, bringing them back out after the land has had its Sabbath rest. Uh, as we read in Chronicles, it says that, that they were in Babylon all this time so the land could have its Sabbath rest. And so we see then at the end of Daniel's prayer, an angel comes to him and, and gives him some indication of what's going to happen in the future for Daniel. And he gives him these uh, 70 sevens, uh, 70 weeks, if you will. And it seems that he is looking covenantally at this thing. And that the 70 is very significant. 
and that what he's looking for, uh, especially thinking covenantally with the idea of the rest and all, is that there's coming a time at the end of that, at the end of the 70th week, that there is going to be the one big mega jubilee, right? And where, where we see um, the people set free and that, uh, you know, debts repaid and, and all of these things. And so it seems that uh, the angel is telling um, Daniel that that's what we're looking forward to. And so I think that's the best way to understand Daniel chapter 9. Then we, we moved into the New Testament. We're going to look at uh, uh, four different New Testament passages. And we're still in the first one. And uh, Matthew 24, Matthew uh, and, uh, and Mark 13 and Luke 21 as well. Uh, where we have this discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse because they're on the Mount of Olives. Now, what is happening here is, is Jesus and his disciples have just left the, uh, just left the temple. And it's um, that Jesus has uh, told them that uh, the Lord was leaving the temple. And that he was not going to be with them there. And so he and his disciples then leave. And it's so, uh, it's, it, it, it is so symbolic. The uh, Lord's presence is leaving the temple. You're depending on the temple and not the God of the temple to, to save you. And, you're, uh, and these things. And so de uh, the Jesus and his disciples leave. And they, they walk away over to the Mount of Olives. And they can see the temple there. And his disciples are pretty excited about it and so they're calling his attention here in uh, Matthew 24 the first verses uh, Jesus left the temple and was walking away and his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings and he said do you see these things he asked I tell you the truth not one stone here will be left on another every one of them will be torn down well that puts his disciples into quandary about what's he talking about they want to know when is this going to happen they see when this happening is when the kingdom is restored to Jerusalem and so they say when is this going to happen and uh, when will you uh, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age in other words what's going to be the sign of your setting up the kingdom they're thinking that what Jesus is talking about he's going to be kicking the Romans out he's going to become the the uh, Davidic king and Israel will be restored to its old uh, form of glory. That's what they were looking forward to. And so they asked Jesus these questions and he begins to answer them. And uh, as we saw from verses 4 through 14, he's talking about events that are going to take place pretty soon, pretty shortly. But he says, now these events, when you see them happening, I want you to know that that's not the sign that these things are going to happen. These things are going to happen up until then, but they're not the sign that it's imminent, that the, 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 the temple's going to be destroyed. I want you to know that. And so he, he talks about the many things that are happening, going to happen there. There's going to be uh, many who are going to say they're Christ, claim to be the Christ. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes in various places. There's going to be famines and and all, you're going to be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And, all, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And so on. Uh, we, see, we saw all those things. And we were able to see by looking at 
um, accounts in scripture uh, during this time period and even extra biblical accounts or specifically the writing of Josephus and others at that time. Uh, so many of these things happening between when Jesus telling his disciples this, 33 AD, until 70 AD when the prediction that there's not going to be one stone left on another is going to come true. And so all of these things are from four, verses 4 to 14. Jesus says they're not the ultimate sign that's going to happen. They're going to happen, but don't think that they're the signs of it just yet. And so he goes on then from verses uh, 15 to 28, and he refers to the one sign that's going to really be the sign that it's about to happen. And um, we see it in verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And then he's going on, he says, this is, this is the sign that it is upon us, okay? Is you're going to see this abomination causes desolation. And you say, what is that? Well, you look in Luke's uh, gospel, and he says, he changed, he's got Jesus' words a little bit different there. He says, when you see an army surrounding Jerusalem. Right? And so we, it seems to indicate that the abomination that causes desolation is going to be the Romans coming, and they're going to come into the temple and uh, set up the Roman standard uh, within the temple. Um, and we know that all this happened uh, around 70 A.D. Um, and the, uh, we saw much of what goes on within Jerusalem uh, happening. And just terrible atrocities. The zealots come in there. And uh, there's a lot of murder and intrigue. And there's, there's famine within the city. Uh, there's just lots of murder and awful stuff going on. Even the zealots uh, somewhat... Uh, desecrate the temple and um, but ultimately in 70 AD the Romans come in and um, they wind up burning the city and destroying it and even leveling it so that not one stone is left on another we read accounts from Josephus so it was so so uh, devastating that people would come back and look at it and couldn't even believe there would ever been a city there it was just leveled to the ground and Jesus is telling them this, and in, in his telling them this, we saw that Jesus is warning them this is going to happen. He says, when you see this abomination that caused desolation, which would be the uh, Roman army surrounding the city, you better escape. Get out of there while you can. And we saw that there was a time when the Roman uh, general actually withdrew unexplicably, and all the Christians leave the city. <laughs> And uh, the records that we have about it, not one Christian was put to death during this whole uh, ordeal because uh, the Romans instead they fled and got out of the city even as Jesus had warned them to do. And so that's where we, that, that kind of brings us up to verse uh, 29. And so that's kind of where we are. Uh, so up to this point, we're going to say everything has been talking about, uh, Jesus has been telling, answering their question quite specifically, when is it going to happen that, the, that this temple is going to be destroyed? There won't be one stone standing on another. They're all going to be torn down. And so Jesus has answered that and answering that. And he tells them what to look for and to escape. And so all, all of that they do. Now, 
In verses 29 on through 35, we get to some a, a very difficult passage. Okay, and this is probably the most difficult part of the whole passage here. And um, believers come at it with different approaches. There are a number of different approaches that genuine believers look at. Um, two of the two of the primary sources for helping me in this whole study, uh, they agreed on basically everything. They don't agree on this, this one little passage here. <laughs> uh, there's another thing they don't agree on, but with, with uh, just to tell you, on this, um, there are two things basically that they don't agree on about the end times. And I go with one of them on this and the other one on the other one. And so, you know, a lot of this stuff um, is, is just, you have to know that people are coming from the same perspectives even will look at certain passages and have a different understanding about it. Who is this? Um, Kim Riddlebarger and Sam Storm. Okay. So, <clears throat> all right. So with that out there, let's uh, read the passage here, okay? Um, starting verse 29, who can I get to read 29 through 35 for us? Okay. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay. Difficult things here, right off the bat. He says here in verse uh, 29, immediately after this, the distress of those days. What days? Fall of Jerusalem. Immediately after that. Right. He goes on. Um, and in verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. <laughs> what does Jesus mean when he says this generation will not pass away? What, what are some ideas? Depends on if you listen to R.C.'s program. <laughs> <laughs> R.C. says this generation means the ones he's talking to then. Because if you go back to 23, he makes an implied reference to the uh, the priests. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, um, is there a cross-reference? Because I can't remember the reference in the, this generation. There it is. There's 34. Uh, 16.28. Anybody want to look at Matthew 16.28? I think 
think that's the passage. Jesus said, anybody? So I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. Who's he talking to? <laughs> some who are standing here. Could that be this generation? Believing quite possibly. Well, he should be talking to John. Because all the disciples. Yeah. Except for John, have already passed away. Passed away? Oh, yeah. Jesus at this point? Well, what he's talking about here is we'll see the kingdom coming. Of course, then you go back to the already, but the not yet. <laughs> okay, we're, we're not going to get there just yet. We're, um, I, I think Jesus, in talking to his disciples here, he's saying... Some of you standing here, oh, I see what you're saying now. Some of you standing here will, will, uh, will not uh, taste death until you see uh, the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. And that could quite possibly be John that he's talking about there. You also have uh, Matthew 23, 36. Uh, yeah. Who's he talking about? I, I, I find it hard to believe that uh, it would be anything other than you who are right here. I'm talking to you. You're this generation before you die. Before you die. There are those who would look at this and say, well, this generation is talking about the nation of Israel. I think that's there's nowhere else talked about that way, so I don't know why it would be here. That would be a difficult thing. Um, others see it in, in different ways, but I, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, especially with the whole idea here of immediately, uh, Jesus saying after the distress of these days, these things are going to happen, and this generation uh, will certainly not pass away until all these things that I've just told you about, 70 AD and all these things, does that include verses 29 through 31, where he says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the skies. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations on the earth will mourn. Uh, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds uh, from one end of the heavens to the other. I don't remember reading about that any time happening any time around 70 AD. <laughs> Do you? Okay, so, but Jesus is saying immediately after these things, and this generation will not pass away before you see it. How, how are we to how are we to understand these things? Well, uh, he, he told them about the time that uh, the fig tree represents the country of Israel, and Israel becomes a grove like they become a 
don't see the end of time. Yeah, th there are some who, who suggest that too. The, the problem is they have to keep expanding what a generation is. At first, the generation was 30 years, and then it was 35 years, and then it was 40 years. And since 48, how long has that been now? It's 71. 71 years. So it gets it gets longer and longer, uh, even if you're. And so that that, I mean, not 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 having to talk from about a. Uh, uh, but he gives man so. 110 years to live. So could the generation be about 110 years? It could be. It started out 65 years, but now another time it said 110 years. I don't remember the 110, but that's okay. Let's, I want us to look at it at a different way of looking at it. And I think part of the issue, and uh, this guy makes a good point, I think, is we, we're reading it. We're not, Jesus, in, in talking, he's talking to Jews who would have had a, a, a way to understand the Old Testament. And um, so they would have been reading it with, with kind of Old Testament eyes. And so what we're going to do is, is say, Um, and so I apologize for doing this, but I just think that it, it will be so much, hopefully it will be so much clearer, and if it's not clear, you can take this home and, and look it over some more. And this gentleman's saying, maybe we need to read it with eyes of someone who would have understood the Old Testament maybe a little better uh, than, than we have. And so, um, it is... I want to suggest, especially from the words, this, uh, immediately this happens, and especially, uh, not only the immediately, but also this generation. So maybe we should uh, see, can this, uh, this passage here from uh, verses 29 through 35, uh, how maybe can we say that this is a, a 70 AD interpretation of it? And so uh, I'm going to run through some of these things, going to um, read some of it, and then I'll ask you to read some uh, different places it wants. So this is, this is a, a uh, argument for the idea that this is, this, what Jesus is saying here really is about what took, takes place in 70 AD in the immediate aftermath of the... Um, of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. All right. Um, in Ma so we're going to start here. Number one, you see it uh, on your first page. Number one, you, you can kind of see where I underline stuff. It <laughs> uh, doesn't always come across in the, the copy, but it did this time. Uh, Matthew 24, 15 through 25, and Mark 13, etc., uh, has already shown... Uh, describe the events connected with the siege of Jerusalem, but without describing the actual fall of the city. Okay? Uh, this leads to uh, this leads to expect a further section which will complete the prophecy by stating that the city will actually be destroyed and uh, and mentioning the significance and effects of this destruction. When one begins to read Mark 13 verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation. The impression is uh, virtually uh, irresistible that one is about to be introduced to the catastrophe to which Mark 13, verses 14 through 22 have been leading up to. Uh, the Matthew account, uh, 
uh, the Matthew edition of immediately only strengthens the impression and lays a heavy burden on the proof of those who suggest that Mark 13, those verses refer to anything other than the fall of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then we go on. He begins to talk about, in, in Matthew 24, these events that happen. In verse 29, he talks about the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We've always looked at that and thought, that's similar to what it's going to be like when Jesus returns, right? At the, at the last days. But if we're reading it from a uh, Old Testament eyes, uh, you, you look about halfway down under number two. There are phenomenal uh, events involving sun, moon, stars, and powers in heavens don't sound to the 21st uh, century mind like a description of what happened in 70 AD. The reason for that is because we uh, mistakenly seek to interpret and understand prophecy by reading the New York Times or Newsweek or watching the evening news rather than reading the Bible. Remember, Jesus was speaking to people saturated with Old Testament language concepts and imagery. Uh, from the earliest days of their lives, uh, they memorized and were taught the Old Testament. Thus, when Jesus spoke to them of things to come, he used pro prophetic vocabulary of the Old Testament, which would uh, ins they would instantly recognize. Uh, <clears throat> consequently, if you are to if we are to understand Matthew 24, 29 through 31, his parallels Luke 21, etc., we must read and interpret them through a biblical, that is, Old Testament lens. Luke refers to signs in sun, moon, and stars. Matthew says the sun will be dark and the moon lose its light, the stars will fall uh, from the sky. Are these literal, physical, uh, astronomical events that one might see with the naked eye? Uh, he says, I don't think so. In the Old Testament, such language was used to portray not what was going on in the heavens, but what was actually happening on earth. Natural disasters, political upheavals, turmoil among the nations, etc., are often described figuratively uh, through the terminology of cosmic disturbances. And now on down to the to the bottom here, um, we're, we're going to see these things as we're going to look at some Old Testament passages. You will see that this is the way that the Old Testament talks about this, this at times. He says, as we shall see, uh, when the sun and the moon are darkened and stars fall from heaven, the reference is to the disasters and distress befalling nations on the earth. Uh, some examples of how cosmic events are uh, used as symbolic portrayals of earthly realities, whether blessing or cursing, include Isaiah 60, 20. We're, we're going to look at uh, some different ones on through this. He's got some examples. So we, you, if you want to look at these uh, later when you get home, that's fine. Um, but they include Isaiah 60, 20, Amos 8, 2 through 9, uh, Zephaniah 1, 4, and 15, Isaiah uh, 5.30, Jeremiah 4.23.28.13.16, Joel 2.10. In Isaiah 13.9-10, we read of the impending judgment of God on Babylon, which he describes in this way. Here's the fall of Babylon. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be darkened when it rises, and the moon will not shed forth its light. Sound familiar? Sound like Jesus could maybe be using the same sort of technique in, in talking to uh, his disciples here. Here's the Dallas Seminary professor um, who 
admits that this language is figurative. Uh, and he's talking about Matt in the Mark passage here. He says, the statements in 1310 about the heavenly body, stars, sun, and moon, no longer functioning may figuratively describe the total turnaround of the political structure of the Near East. The same would be true of the heavens trembling as the earth shaking. Figures of speech suggesting all-encompassing destruction. That Jesus is looking at this and saying what's happening here and what has happened in Jerusalem where um, they, they've had the temple and they've kind of been trying to have their own rule and set up their own kingdom here and, and the language that he's using is just the total collapse of that whole system. They talk that way in the Old Testament. We see it concerning uh, Egypt from Ezekiel. Um, 32, 7 through 15. Um, this isn't that old passage, but it says, I will cover the heaven and make the stars uh, thereof dark. I will cover the sun with the cloud and the moon will not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark uh, over thee and set darkness upon the land. I shall make the land of Egypt desolate. Um, in Isaiah 34, he's talking about uh, uh, Edom. He says, all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf from its vine, as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is sated in heaven. Did I say that correctly? Uh, behold, it shall descend from judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have uh, devoted to destruction. And so we see <clears throat> that uh, in the Old Testament, there, there's more uh, than, than just these couple of examples here, but we see um, phenomenological language uh, about stuff happening in the cosmos uh, to refer to things that are happening in the destruction of nations and the earth shaking in a sense as, as um, that nation which was supposedly ruling at that time has now uh, been um, done away with and it, it is gone. Okay, <clears throat> now, over next page. So as far as the phenomenological language of the sun being darkened, the moon not give its light, the stars uh, fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That certainly is language that the Old Testament would use regarding um, our, our system just falling apart. And it seems like the earth is crumbling and falling apart before us. So. And his disciples certainly could have understood his... Uh, expression that way because they were familiar with these passages in the Old Testament. Um, then, verse 30, we go on. It says, um, At that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. Uh, they will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud of the sky with power and great glory. Did that happen immediately after the events? Um, and would that generation see those things, as Jesus said? Um, we see here, um, it's about a quarter, not quite a quarter of the way down. You can see right up underlined here, the coming 
of the Son of Man, verse 30, is allusion to Daniel 7, uh, 13 through 14. Look up Daniel. Where is Joel Amos? I can find it. Here is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel's having a vision. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence, and all, and he was given authority, a glory, and sovereign power over uh, uh, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What's Daniel having the vision of? Where's, where is he coming? He's coming with the clouds. Where is he coming? He's coming in the presence of the Ancient of Days. He's coming into the presence of uh, God the Father. And at that point, he's coming to be uh, uh, seated on his throne in all authority and all powers given to him at that point. Could it be that Jesus, in talking about uh, the coming of the Son of Man, um, they will see the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds. That sounds like the language of Daniel seven, right? Coming before the uh, coming before the Ancient of Days, uh, coming with power and great glory. He's given authority. But what about the first part of verse thirty? There, at that time, uh, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of earth will mourn. Um, well. Um, let's see. Did I skip a page? I don't think I did. Um, here it's not the Son of Man, but the sign of the Son of Man will appear, and all the nations will mourn. Um, he talks in here about the uh, possibility. Okay, it's on the next page here. And the number four. You'll see the number four on the next page there. This is a, a literal uh, translation of verse 30. reads as follows. Uh, and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then will mourn all the tribes of the land as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In other words, Jesus was not telling his disciples that he would appear in the sky. Rather, he told them that they would see a sign that proved he was in heaven sitting at the Father's right hand. Those who would witness Jerusalem's destruction would see the sign of Jesus' enthronement as they saw Jerusalem's destruction. In other words, the sign of the Son of Man being thrown and vindicated in heaven is the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple on earth. It is the sign that appears, not the Son of Man that appears. It's the sign of, uh, that appears. And what, is, uh, does, what does the sign signify? It signifies that the Son of Man is in heaven, exalted, vindicated, and enthroned on the right hand of God. He has made this prophecy that this is going to happen. They've rejected the fact that he is the Messiah to come. The, the fulfillment of this prophecy verifies that the fulfillment of this prophecy verifies that he is who he said he was. 
and that he therefore will be uh, with the fall of Jerusalem when his prophecy comes true, it does verify that all the rest that he said about himself will be true. And so number five here, this coming of Christ uh, to God the Father in heaven, which and by which he is vindicated and his authority established will be greeted by the morning predicted in Zechariah 12, uh, verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> all the tribes on earth is better translated, all the tribes' families of the land. Uh, for in Zechariah 12, 10 through 14, the morning is explicitly restricted to the families of Israel. What is in view here, then, is not so much worldwide lamentation, but the response of Israel when they see the vindication of him they pierced. Makes sense. That, that yes, it is true that he, all that, that he said was true. And, and so our, our nation, our, our temple, which we love so much, uh, has been destroyed. Um, okay. Let's go on. Uh, we get to another thorny issue here about this happening immediately and within that generation when he talks about uh, in verse 31, uh, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. <laughs> well, if you know the Greek word for angels is angelos. Uh, it literally means messengers. And so you see here on this one page starts with number six here. The word angels literally means messengers and refers to human preaching of the gospel throughout the world. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, the Greek word angelos is often translated as messenger and he gives all these places. A guy named Kenneth Gentry who writes a lot on this. Gentry contends that even if we apply this to angels, it would then refer to the supernatural power which lies behind preaching. Then it would teach that the angels of God attend our faithful proclamation of God's word. And so he um, goes on number seven. This reference to trumpet is perhaps an allusion to the meaning by which the Old Testament jubilee was announced. When you uh, then you shall cause a trumpet of jubilee. By the way, jubilee means trumpet, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Then, uh, then you shall cause the trumpet of jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout the land. The point of its use here is to declare that with the destruction of the temple, the ultimate jubilee year has arrived. That is to say, by employing imagery from the typological year of jubilee in Leviticus 25, the Lord here speaks about the final stages of redemption <clears throat> which is finally secured as the temple vanishes from history. Jesus himself announces the fulfillment of Jubilee law in his ministry when he quoted from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue sermon in Luke 4. Uh, the ultimate deliverance of God's people and liberation from all indebtedness that was to come in the person of Christ. Um, and so the trumpet call... You're saying, you know, it's like referring to the to the ultimate jubilee that's coming in Jesus and that Jesus actually his first sermons about that from uh, in Luke four, which he, where he quotes from Isaiah 61 says today in your hearing, this is fulfilled. And that's when they decide they're going to stone him. But anyway, um, number eight there, the gathering together, because this talks not only about the angels um, um, going out 
out with the trumpet call and they're gathering the elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. The gathering together, number 8, verse 31, of God's elect is not a reference to the end time harvest but to the worldwide growth of the church. That is an ongoing throughout this present age. It includes both the gathering of the saints to local assemblies of churches and the universal assembling of the saints into the body of Christ, the universal church. Gentry explains, uh, uh, through Christ's commission to gospel preaching by faithful messengers, God gathers the elect into his kingdom from the four corners of the world. <clears throat> the phrase, from one end to the, of the sky to the other, does not indicate that the place of the action is in the sky or heaven above. The phraseology often signifies nothing more than the uh, horizon to horizon. Thus, it speaks about the evangelistic activity spreading throughout the earth. In fact, it parallels uh, from the four winds, that is, four points of the compass. Uh, this is, of course, Jesus' promise in his ministry, despite the failure of his own people. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Um, both Matthew and Luke speak about all four points of the compass. And so um, here he's, uh, it, it seems to be, and, and Paul even says, you know what? The gospel, even before, in Paul's writing to uh, Rome and writing to uh, Colossae, he says, the gospel's gone into all the world. People all over the world are hearing the gospel and knowing. And, and, and coming in. And so it seems that Jesus is, is saying here, you know, immediately after this, this, uh, this worldwide spread of the gospel and the elect are coming in from all kinds of places, from all different nations, is going to happen here. And um, so, <clears throat> all right. It's uh, going down to the bottom. You can see where I underlined there at the, at the very bottom of the page there. Thus, according to this view, Jesus does not address the issue of his second coming at the end of history until verse 36. He is going to get there. In verse 36, he's going to talk what I, I believe you have to understand. In verse 36, which we'll get to next week, he's, he says, um, he's talking about the end times, the day he is going to return and what that will look like and so on and so forth. But not to verse 36, I believe. I believe everything else up until that point is talking about uh, the, the issue in 70 AD. Okay. Um, uh, so according to this view, Jesus does not address the issue of his second coming at the end of history until verse 36. Therefore, all these things which must take place before this generation passes away refers to everything described in verses 4 through 31. Uh, that is events leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, Aaron and Mars is kind of scary. Mm -hmm. I think probably be the same. Yeah, he's Gentry. Yeah. So <clears throat> now I, I believe it's clear in verse 36 when we get there, uh, and we will get there next week. Verse 36, he is talking about the, he's talking about a time that's still yet to come. That, in verse 36, he's not still talking and saying, those who are here in this generation will see this. In fact, he goes on to say, I can't tell you when that's going to be. Um, 
And he says, no one knows that day or hour, not even the uh, angels in heaven nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. And then he's going to go on and talk a little bit about that. But anyway, up to this point, I think, uh, from uh, verse 4 all the way to verse uh, 35, Jesus is answering their questions specifically about What's gonna, when is it going to be that the temple is going to be destroyed? What's it going to look like? And you're, you're coming at the end of the age, the end of the age that is there. So um, if you want to take this home, I mean, we, we breezed through it <clears throat> just with some highlighted areas. Maybe you can read through it yourself. And if you wanted to uh, highlight your own, own areas, you could do that. But I, I do think that... If, if, we, if we're looking at this, uh, and I think there are some who uh, will take <clears throat> verses 29 through 31 and, and pull that out and um, say, well, that's, the, that's dealing with what Jesus begins talking about in 36. And then they go back to 32 and say that this is um, 32 through 35. And again, that's dealing with 78D. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But it does seem to me, because of the language here, uh, saying immediately after the distress of those days, and then going on to say, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. I, I can't believe that Jesus here is talking about something that is still yet to come, but that something that has happened and did happen uh, in 70 AD. Okay, now, <clears throat> next week, Again, we, we get to uh, what Jesus talks about in verse 36 onward. I believe it's clear he's talking about something that's not yet happened and that will happen. And so uh, we'll get to that next week. Okay. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat>